It's Monday, May 14th, and this is The Daily Dive. After some good news met the Trump administration with the release of three Americans from North Korea, damaging leaks once again plagued the White House. This time, it was comments made by White House aide Kelly Sadler about Senator John McCain, who is battling brain cancer. In an internal meeting, Sadler made the comment, he's dying anyway, being dismissive of McCain's opposition to Gina Haspel, nominee to be the next director of the CIA. His opposition stems from her role in overseeing the torture of a terrorist suspect in Thailand. Officials have been more concerned with the leaks coming out rather than the content of remarks made about Senator John McCain. That aide has not publicly apologized or been fired. We'll speak to Reuters political reporter Ginger Gibson for more on this. It is also Mental Health Month. We'll speak to author Katie Williams about her book, Journey of the Heart. It's the journal she wrote after losing her brother Gabe to suicide. We will look at warning signs and what to do if someone is in need of mental health help. Katie is sharing her story in the hopes of letting people know they are not alone. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Kelly, here's a little news flash. We're all dying. I'm dying, you're dying, we're all dying. And I want to say that um, since my dad has been diagnosed the past, it's almost a year, July 19th, I really feel like I understand that meaning of life. And it is not how you die, it is how you live. In this kind of environment, the thing that surprises me most is, I don't understand what kind of environment you're working in when that would be acceptable, and then you can yes. come to work the next day and still have a job. Yeah. And that's all I have to say about it. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Leaks have been a major problem for this White House since, since they started. The latest one concerns uh, Senator John McCain, and a White House aide named Kelly Sadler. Can you tell us what happened with the leak that came out of a meeting that they had? John McCain, one of the most respected and veteran members of the United States Senate, is battling brain cancer. And apparently in a meeting uh, at the White House, Kelly Sadler, who handles surrogate communications, so kind of in charge of like helping Trump fans get out in the media and talking about Trump remarked that John McCain was dying anyway, in a a sort of flippant way. It was kind of a dark, inappropriate thing to say about a very well-respected member of the United States Senate. And then what is like really sort of shocked Washington is that somebody in the White House went out and told the press that it happened. They leaked this conversation so that all of us are aware that Sadler made these remarks uh, in a White House meeting. Right. And then what happened after that was Sarah Huckabee Sanders held a meeting of for the White House communications team. And she was saying, you know, this inappropriate remark, but they really focused on the matter that it was leaked out. <laughs> and then she even said in that meeting, hey, this is probably going to get leaked itself. And true to form, that's exactly what happened. There was five sources out of that meeting that came out and leaked out the new information again the administration is making the leak a bigger problem than what Kelly Sadler had, has actually said, but they haven't really denounced it publicly either yet. They have not. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House press secretary, asked about this remark this week, sort of refused to apologize or didn't really sort of say that the White House regretted or was apologetic for that statement. That would be upset 
upset a lot of Republicans and instead tried to make it about the leak itself. And I think the leak itself is also remarkable. Somebody wanted to make the president look bad, wanted to make people close to the president look bad, and did it in a way that they leaked that someone was disparaging one of the most respected Republicans in Washington. What do so many leaks coming out of this White House say about it? It really, uh, you know, when I talk to Republicans here in Washington, they tell me that seeing a leak like this, seeing Republican staffers in the White House being willing to say that a staffer said this about a respected Republican speaks to the loyalty of the staff. Uh, And that's really remarkable for a White House that looked in the last couple of months like they may be getting uh, these leaks under control. This type of episode, again, reminds us that that it, it is not calmed down and that there's still a lot of animosity inside the White House. Yeah, Jonathan Swan over at Axios spoke to some of his leakers, some of the, his sources that he's used in the past, and asked them, what's the deal with leaking? Why is everybody doing it? And, you know, he said that a lot of time it's about personal vendettas. People want to get an accurate record of what's going on in the White House. But uh, a lot of times people lose policy debates and it's like their last chance to get it out there and maybe get a reversal because of the public or because of Congress or because of the president. But, I mean, it really just speaks to a lack of loyalty, really, something that the president values highly. And there's just nobody getting along in this system, in this administration. It's a lack of loyalty. It's a lack of respect. We're really dealing with a rogue White House and a White House where people are more concerned about getting the last word than they are about sort of holding on to historic norms where you just didn't do or say those types of things. For Kelly Sadler's part, she did call Meghan McCain, John McCain's daughter, to apologize. But reports also say that she said she would apologize publicly. That hasn't happened as of now. Do we expect that to happen? Do we expect any type of action taken against Sadler? I think people in Washington have the utmost respect for Meghan McCain. Those who know her know that she doesn't take any flack from anyone. And I think that it's not surprising that she would have expected and defended her father in this way to expect an apology. Surprised that we haven't seen a public apology. And I think that Meghan will probably keep pressing for it. And this deserved one, someone who very well respected here in Washington as well as her father. Let's move on to some of the president's tweets over the weekend. In an interesting tweet, he was talking about this Chinese telecom corporation called ZTE and said, we need to get them back into business fast. They had been accused of trying to sell products to Iran, to North Korea. Obviously, we just got out of the Iran nuclear deal. So it's an interesting turn of events that he wants to try to get this corporation back in business. ZTE is a communications company. They make cell phones and they, they work Globally, in the cell phone business, the U.S. President Trump calls the Iran deal the worst deal ever. He says the U.S. and its allies should not be doing business with Iran, sort of disrupts the entire global political sphere by saying this, and then turns around less than a week later and says that CTE, which the U.S. has said should not be allowed, anyone should be allowed to do business with them because of their dealings with Iran. He comes to their defense. And and part of this is because there are companies that American companies do business with. 
So it's, it's another piece of evidence that the global supply chains are very large, that all of these decisions have global ramifications for other countries and for American businesses. Do we know what ZTE was accused of doing? Um, I had seen something that they said their tech could pose a cybersecurity threat. Do we know exactly what the problem was? First off, the United States Commerce Department said that the United States company should not be able to do business with ZTE because they had done business with Iran when the United States had sanctions and that they didn't put enough safeguards in place to ensure that their technology was not being sold to Iran. That was problem number one. Problem number two was Commerce and the Department of Defense came out and said that phones that had been manufactured by ZTE also carried a risk that the Chinese may have built a back door into them and they'll be able to listen to American conversations, not just conversations like we're having on a podcast or uh, you might be having with a friend, but conversations that the government might be having whenever using their products for government conversations. So ZTE really was having a lot of trouble with the U.S. government on two fronts, not just that they were doing business with Iran, but also this concern that any of their technology came with a risk that the Chinese might be able to hack into those discussions. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me back. And people would say, how do you do it? I said, it's just who I am. It's what I want to do. I want to keep going. I don't want to stop. Isn't it interesting how you sharing your story with your friends, you know, perhaps saved another life? And that's why I think it's so important for us to share our stories. And because in really good families, strong families, difficult trials happen. And suicide is one of them. May is Mental Health Month. And joining us now is Katie Williams. She's the author of Journey of the Heart a 17-year-old's journal after losing her brother to suicide. I think it's very important to talk about these types of issues. There's a lot of social stigma around mental health and suicide, and that prevents a lot of people from getting help. This book that you put together is really a collection of journal entries that you wrote after your brother had committed suicide. Tell us a little bit about that and what prompted you to start writing these journal entries. My brother and I were 18 months apart, so a year and a half, one year apart in school, so very close. We grew up in a very tight-knit family in the San Fernando Valley in Northridge. A little bit about my brother's story. He was always a little bit of a rebel and always wanted to do things kind of his own way, but things kind of started to change. He just started acting out more than normal, and he would say things like, oh, well, I'll kill myself. And he would always be upset, though, when he'd say it, and so I never took him seriously. I thought, you're just saying that because you're mad because— Something happened or you got in trouble, something something occurred. Take us back a little earlier than that. Yeah. What kind of person was he that you remember? He was always Gabe. He was always fun-loving, outgoing. Everybody adored my brother. He was a guy that if there was a new kid in school, he would be reaching out, like introducing himself, making them feel comfortable, especially if it was a cute girl. He would <laughs> definitely make sure right, he right. met her. He was just life at the party. He was kind of a zero to 60 personality, all or nothing. When we were in high school, he came into my room, like knocked on the door. You want to take the car out tonight? I was like, man, you don't even have a driver's license. <laughs> I don't even have a permit. Right. What kind of trouble are we going to get in? But the way he looked at me and the way he just kept talking, I thought he's not going to stop until I just say yes. Yeah. 
So, so let's go on this adventure. Yeah. And I said, how are we going to get it out of the garage without mom and dad hearing? He said, trust me. <laughs> like, so, oh, you've been doing this. I know hindsight is 2020, but part of it, why you were creating these journal entries is to kind of explore, you know, what happened and what it meant to you and everything. Did you ever notice a change back then? At the time I noticed a change, it was probably the last year or so of his life. The trouble increased. He was getting in trouble at home, at school. He started experimenting with drugs and alcohol. My parents would give him a curfew. He'd come home the next morning. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? You're just making this harder on yourself. Some of the the personality of it, just like that fighting spirit he had, it was coming out more in anger. I remember he told me later that, kind of a confession, actually. He said, I feel like a failure. I feel like I messed up our family. I think I, me- I feel like I messed up my life. I thought, he's 17. There's nothing we can't fix. There's nothing right. that's happened. I can see from the outside that is is something that would make him want to kill himself. And so when he would start making comments like this at home, you'll miss me if I kill myself or you'll, I thought he's being dramatic. To be honest, I thought he'll never do it. A lot of these are common warning signs that you obviously, you know, when you're young and you don't notice these things, but looking back on it, these are common warning signs. Anything else that people should be looking out for? Absolutely. So let's, let's walk through some of those warning signs. So first of all, and all this you can find on American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, but one of the things you always have to look out for is if someone says they want to kill themselves or they want to take their life, Listen, pay attention to that. It's a Take cry it for help. Take it seriously, yeah. That's right. And also just retreating from activities someone used to enjoy, talking about being a burden to others, talking about there's no hope, why go on. All of these things are warning signs. Self-harm, like cutting. My brother was doing that too. Mm-hmm. Anything like that, reckless behavior, increased use of drugs and alcohol. And there's even mood things you can look out for, aggression, anger, depression, all these kind of things. And if you just know anyone in your life that is exhibiting any of these, you can call the hotline to ask for advice on how to help them or you yourself, if you're thinking about suicide, you can call the hotline. It's national, so they can direct you to local resources and can help point you in the right direction to find out where do I go from here. What's that number? Do you have that right there? Yep. So the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. It's the song that Logic made Mm, so famous, as we know. Just one more time, 800-273-8255. They also have a chat feature if you're on their site. Let's say outside looking in, you have a family member, a friend, somebody that might be exhibiting these things. How do you approach this topic with them? How do you, you know, if they're not opening up to you already, but you are concerned, how would you breach that topic with them? If you're already suspecting they're thinking about suicide because they've said something, keep dialoguing with them. Keep them talking. Stay engaged. Stay in it. Call the hotline yourself to get advice for your specific situation because these are professionals who are trained to deal with this 24-7. You don't want to plant the seed, but you also want to know, are they serious about this? You might be surprised at some of the advice you may get, but one of the things you you might be surprised they'll ask you is, ask the person, have you attempted suicide before? Do you have a plan? Like these are the questions people are afraid to ask because right. they're afraid of that answer. One of these signs is pushing people away and the aggression. What do you do when somebody is pushing you away and you're not, you can't make that connection right. or they're hiding it so well that, you know, they're saying, no, nothing's happening. You know, how do you get to that point? Well, there's really two different things. There's a person who is actively talking about wanting to kill themselves, right? So that's that's one situation. But the other, which you just alluded to, is someone who's wearing a mask. 
I think about my brother actually in the in the that category because even though he did verbalize thinking about suicide, there's something to that life of the party outgoing personality that the more people I talk to who've lost someone to suicide, I find it's a common thread amongst a lot of people. I'm not saying all, but amongst a lot of people who I've met is that there's this personality trait that I hear from others that was similar to my brother in this outgoing wearing a mask. And so in that case, it's just asking someone, how are you really? And actually finding out. One of the things that I really like about the book is you have a few sections dedicated to memories that you wrote about him. I think we honor people that we've lost through memories. Uh, Is there any favorite memories that you have of your brother? There are definitely stories that come to mind, but I think it's just the little things. I miss that we'd be in the kitchen, you know, making food together and he'd start singing a song and I'd sing the other half. You know, I miss (laughs) Midnight Cereal when we talked about what we did that weekend or he'd tell me what girls he liked. We talk about mental health month and people that are feeling these feelings of, uh, you know, depression and et cetera. And and family members that recognize them, people, I mean, definitely go to the proper people and get help. But beyond that, you know, you writing this book helps a lot of other people with their own mental health. I mean, this is not just this, something that affected your brother, it affected you and your family. You know, the person I think about the most during this process, well, second to my brother, of course, and my family, I think about the person who's just like my brother, who's right on the line, who's starting to think, is it worth it? I can make all this go away. I think about those people that have made it through that dark time. I think about the people that have started reaching out to me as I'm sharing my story, my brother's story. These people start sharing their own, whether it's on social media or all kinds of ways that they're reaching out to me and I'm hearing their stories and they say, I was in a dark place and I got help and now I'm still here. So thank you for sharing your story because it helps me. And I think, I think about those people. They're one decision away from getting the help, from reaching their hand out, getting the help and making one decision that will change their life. How do you talk to people who have lost somebody? I know there's a lot of sensitivities. People want to walk on eggshells, but how do you broach this topic with somebody else? It's such a good question because nobody, the truth is nobody knows what to say. What was very helpful for me, especially right after my brother died, I think some of the best things that people said was they would walk up to me and say, I have no idea what to say. I'm just so sorry you lost your brother. And I think that was perfect. We can get more information about your book at journeyoftheheartbook.com. You can find it on Amazon, iTunes, all over the place. You can get an audiobook of this. And I'm always a huge fan of hearing the author read their own work. It's a very personal thing already, but I love that you read your own book for the audio versions of this. Journeyoftheheartbook.com. Katie Williams, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.